Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulp. I'm a professor and podcast host. And one of the things we've talked about for a long time now is that simply innovating is not enough. That innovation has to come along with some communication before it gets to application. And we've seen all kinds of examples of this, of between genetically engineered crops and animals to even vaccination. Whenever we come up with new innovations that have very important impacts, maybe the best example today, the HPV vaccine, right? There's still people who refuse to take it and still a lot of misinformation and disinformation swirling about what that vaccine is. Yet even today, a study of 1 million Swedish women showed that it significantly decreases incidence of different types of cancers. So there's a really important and urgent um, need to increase our ability to communicate this information correctly. Now, one of the things we made a mistake with as scientists was thinking we could just bury people in science. And it wasn't just that. We couldn't just give them the data and evidence and expect everything to be okay. That we took understanding the psychology and so social uh, sciences in order to be able to be more effective. And one of the folks who I've had the pleasure of working with in many different ways over the years has been Dr. Cami Ryan. Um, she's with us today on the podcast, and we'll talk about some of these important topics. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ryan. Well, thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, and I I really appreciate that we have the opportunity to do this. And uh, the timing is just right. Um, I've, I've wanted to have you on for a long time, but recently read something that you wrote in uh, for Purdue University that was really important and really kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said that uh, we had to do this. So right now you work as the social sciences lead for uh, Bayer Crop Sciences. Yes, I do. Uh, in regulatory and scientific affairs, yes. In regulatory and scientific affairs. Okay. But you didn't always work for Bayer. And you and I first met back when you were a an academic a University of Saskatchewan. Yes, Canada. Yeah. In Canada. Yeah, well, you're originally from Canada, right? I am. Yeah, so you're, you're a Canadian, and, and you originally worked for uh, University of Saskatchewan. And you were, and tell me some of the things that you were studying back then. Well, my PhD research. By the way, it's really interesting talking to you and hearing your chickens uh, in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I know I have the window open, and I probably need to close that. <laughs> no, don't. I love it. <laughs> you know what? I'll leave it open for ambiance. It's pro yeah, it's providing some ambiance here. It's really good. I think that that's either Fonzie. Or Stinky Lyle. I'm not sure which one, but what? But I, I, but that's what who the rooster is. Stinky Lyle. <laughs> so 
The fawns I get, <laughs> but Stinky Lyle, you might you'll have to tell me that story later. So tell me about your you tell me about your academic past. Okay, I will. Um, well, back in the day when I was doing my PhD research, uh, I was interested in the relationships amongst scientists, not only their professional relationships, but the personal relationships. Do they play racquetball? Do they go out for beer together? You know, do they all, do all of these things? So it kind of linked me in with the tool of social network analysis, where you try to understand how things are connected. Slowly over time, that research evolved into looking at how uh, plant, uh, plant genetic systems or systems of uh, organizations and individuals are connected and sharing uh, information or sharing materials like plant genetic resources and sort of thing. So I was looking at that and how those organizations work together to facilitate material transfers uh, intellectual property exchange, all of those kinds of things. Then it kind of evolved into taking that network tool and looking at how are uh, activists organized around one another. So that's kind of, I'm, I'm kind of squishing it all into a bit of a simplistic turn or an, a description of what my work was around. But um, by 2009, I was on this Genome Canada funded project, and it was a flax project, flax research project. So I was the uh, social scientist that was on board with that. And I was looking at a, a bunch of social issues around flax research, you know, exchange of intellectual property, all of that. But what happened during that time, very early in my tenure with that project, is that it, uh, a genetically engineered flax uh, seed was discovered or seeds were discovered in stores of flax in the EU. And I won't get into the details of what happened there, but essentially it shut down the, uh, you know, the egg flax industry in Canada. It caused a lot of problems, but it really uh, incited me to understand better what con controversy and how how controversies can really drive dialogue around food production, even when things are safe or deemed safe, but also looking at in, in, in issues management uh, techniques or tactics around those things. So by the time I met you in 2012, 2013, I was, that project was coming to a close, but I also had gotten interested in science communication. So I think that's where you and I crossed paths, which was really interesting. And that original research, would you say that was kind of organizational psychology, that kind of a discipline? Yeah, a lot of that. And that, like behavioral psychology, um, a lot of it revolved around, I mean, you're, you're also looking at innovation, right? Another facet of that was innovation. Well, how do you optimize uh, intellectual property exchange, whether it's the knowledge in people's heads or it's, or it's a, a patent? to optimize innovative capacities. So there's there's a business aspect of it. There was an, the organizational psychology part of it, you know, behavioral things as well. Because what I did discover very early on in the process is that the stronger relationships that you have with human-to-human -human relationships or connections, the more you get done. That that was the outcome of my um, my PhD, my doctoral research. So relationships matter. Well, you ended up leaving academia and going to St. Louis, Missouri, and maybe taking a turn that was almost, uh, in a way, seemingly, at least to those of us who, who watched, 
um, very different and almost the opposite of the academic track because you went to work for the Monsanto company. And could you tell me a little bit about that transition? I mean, what was it like going from academia to working for a, not just a company, but a company that had an, an image management, let's say issue um, with respect to their public perception? Well, uh, definitely there were reputational issues with Monsanto, but that may have been one of the bigger reasons that I decided to make that shift or that transition. I was really examining where I was going in my career and I had spent, you know, the last few years really looking at controversy, issues management, uh, public perceptions of biotechnology and all of these things. And I, it was fascinating to me and I thought, well, what's the next thing that I can do that I can extend my, you know, take, take, take my career down a, a related but value added path. And I really, my whole thought was, well, here's this opportunity with this company that already has number one uh, reputational issues, but clearly are leading the process of issues management around these things because they are a lightning rod for all of this criticism. So for me, I thought the best way to have the, the next step in my career was to actually go into what I call the belly of the beast and to really experience what it's like working at a company like that that's actually managing all of these things. It, to me, was... and and has been the social science case study of a lifetime. <laughs> but that's really interesting to me because th this is a seed company and the seed company sells to farmers. And so why would they even care about, you know, something like, like social acceptance? Because I mean, the, nobody goes to the grocery store and says, well, I'm not buying that product, right? They're not, they're not selling directly to the consumer. It's not something you can boycott like, you know, Chef Boyardee or something. Well, true, but food is food. Food's a very important part of our social fabric. As you know, we gather around the table as families and friends and we pull together. And part of the food conversation is food production and seed companies are definitely a part of that. And so was Monsanto. And there were all these conversations occurring out there in the public sphere that companies like Monsanto weren't even a part of. So I think that they had to switch what they were doing. So of course, who they were communicating with and all seed companies were communicating with was their shareholders, the farmers who were their their clients, uh, and, and of course, their employees, but they had to shift. There was a shift there. And so when I joined the company, they were all already well on their way to start examining ways to reach out to other more broader audiences like uh, food, foodies and, and, and moms and people that were really concerned about where their, their food, how their food was produced. Do you think that was because they felt they really dropped the ball, that they should have embraced uh, the foodies and the moms earlier? I don't know. I think that there is this, uh, when you're focused on doing the job that you're doing and you, and you know 
that you're doing a good job, you don't often think beyond the boundaries. I think that's part of our problem in all of our disciplines or whatever job we do is sometimes we get so attached to the vocation that we we don't look outside the pathway that we're on. And so the pathways were changing and moving and maybe as an industry, we weren't keeping up. So I, I wouldn't fully blame it all on one entity. I think it was just as an industry more broadly, we weren't paying attention to what was happening in society. And, you know, we know that even though there is scientific consensus around something, whether it's a product or technology, meaning that something is safe and valuable and beneficial to societies, it doesn't mean that there's social consensus around it. So we have to tackle these problems. And I think companies like Monsanto and the industry more broadly now has recognized that we need to understand some of these broader issues that are attached to innovation and science. If we don't understand these things, then our innovation pipeline or our products or the technologies that we want to have social license to use are at risk. But this is the thing that drives me crazy. And, and maybe you've kind of answered this already, but people don't get freaked out about technology. I don't think that Apple hires a social scientist to uh, figure out how they can best uh, help understand why the public it would be afraid of a smartphone or, you know, or any other kind of technology. People seem to line up and embrace that. They embrace medical technology. What is it about seeds that make them particularly strong as a lightning rod? Well, that probably has something to do largely. I mean, you can probably have some good insights on this, Kevin, too. But I think we're farther away. We're geographically and generationally detached from farming and food production, right? The seed is like way back there for us. We don't buy the seed, quote unquote, in the grocery store, to your earlier point. So we don't have that attachment to the farm. And I think the further we're away from something, and, we're, and the more the gap widens, the more there is an opportunity for other people to fill in those gaps or those information vacuums where there is no information. And perhaps that was uh, one of the bigger mistakes the industry did early on is it failed to anticipate these gaps and what that meant for, for societies more broadly and how they would probably go out and seek information, but then, of course, get, you know, alternative sources of information. I guess the other thought about this, perhaps, and I've seen some people describe it this way, or maybe it was me, I don't know, um, that when you monkey with Maslow's hierarchy of needs on the lowest level, <laughs> then you freak people out. So things like food or water tend to be kind of touchy subjects where a uh, cell phone is kind of further up that pyramid. Does that make any sense or resonate at all? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, to your earlier point, it's funny because all of those Silicon Valley companies, like all of those tech, tech, technical companies like Apple, they all have social scientists working in their space and have for years. Ironically, the in agriculture, I think my role was was if it wasn't the first of its kind it was one of the first of its kind and there's not a lot of people like me working in industry so ironically there probably should be more of us you know we should be tapping into those not that expertise and that knowledge as companies and organizations in this industry 
but yeah, you're right. Like we, we have this interesting, uh, non-controversial relationship with the phones that we have. We derive value, immediate value from these phones that we, or this kind of technology or a laptop or whatever it is. But the thing is we can't relate to the technology that is embedded in a beneficial trait in a seed. We don't see the value of that immediately. And I guess that's kind of the frustration for someone like me, because for years I've been so excited about these kinds of technologies for genetic engineering, whether you're making insulin and microbes or making, uh, you know, Roundup ready, whatever. Um, I've always been really excited about that, even going back to when I was in high school and used to study this stuff. And for me, it made perfect sense. The problem was, is that uh, it didn't seem like like the rest of the world was sharing my enthusiasm. So we started to kind of get out there and talk about these things. And I've really watched this whole idea of science communication start to grow. And how do you think that that whole field has changed over the last you know, 20 years? How, how is just scientists trying over to relate time. these technologies because it's the right thing to do? Yeah. How do you think that that's changed? Well, I think that science communication was is a little different, right? So if we're thinking about how industry works, there's always sort of been at some level science communication. It just depends on where it's been directed at. I think we've evolved over time. I mentioned how even, uh, for example, Monsanto's, uh, legacy Monsanto's uh, communication model was at one point, and we're seeing that being adopted, adopted more broadly, right? But at one point, just even think about this. So now we're in a social media driven world. I remember even in my early tenure with Monsanto years ago, when I started, I remember going to conferences and I was probably the only one from the only company that actually had empowered uh, in their employees to go on social media. That, it, that even took a while to do. So when, you're, when society's out there having these conversations about technology and food and food production, but the people that actually have the expertise and the knowledge are not empowered by the companies to go out there and do it, then that's a problem. Again, that perpetuates a gap. So I think what's really evolved and changed in, ter in terms of science communication is that uh, agriculture, the agriculture industry and the organizations and companies involved have empowered their employees to go out there and have these conversations, to build these relationships and to share their knowledge in meaningful ways. And you're, you know, when you say their employees, you know, it's not just scientists in these places. There's, you know, everything from attorneys to salespeople to whatever. And do you find that scientists are probably the worst at doing it? <laughs> well, you know, you know, okay. So I'm in my fifties and I don't think any scientist in my, in my age range really was trained to communicate about science. We were trained to do science. So it isn't natural for everybody. I think now the upcoming generations, I think they're starting to, uh, in, and you probably can shed some light on this, Kevin, but I think in the, in, in the universities and colleges, they're starting to, you know, science, this, going through science training. Part of that is, of course, the communications aspect of it. So I think it's better. But let's face it, Science and the process of, of observing, it's a process of observation. I, I mean, from a social science perspective, my job 
as an academic was to observe human behavior. That's how I do it. That was my experimentation population group. That's what I looked at. But we always, no matter if we're in the social sciences or the hard natural sciences, we kind of operate naturally out of an ivory tower because we remove ourselves from that which we're observing from a social science perspective, right? So it's very natural and the culture supports that whole thing of being removed from societies in order to do your work. Well, we can't do it that way anymore. We have to engage. We actually, I argue that we have in this day and age of mis and disinformation, we have a moral obligation to get out there and talk about our work, why we love it and, and why it matters. It's, it's, I agree with you a thousand percent. And we have been training students more and more. And I could train students all day. I would never run out of students who want to participate, who want to learn uh, the correct way to engage rather than just by you know spewing science. But how much of all of this and then kind of the increased need has been driven by social media? Tons. It's it, like social media has become our new virtual living room. It has, it has redefined, uh, fundamentally changed how we uh, connect as human beings. So it is overwhelming and powerful. It is in our everyday lives. It's on our phones. It's, it's embedded in everything that we do every day. So, of course, it's very powerful. I mean, what's, what's the numbers? There's supposed to be, what, 4 billion people in the world are expected to be on social media by 2022 or 2023 or something. This is huge, right? This is where we're exchanging, accessing, and creating information. So unless we understand how that landscape operates, we most certainly will not understand how the information that's generated and shared there impacts our social license to operate as scientists. And how much do you feel that our social license has been eroded because folks who maybe are not so excited about the science became masters of using social media. They, they beat us to it. How much has that been a problem? It's been a huge problem, I think. Um, we take a uh, colleagues and I uh, did a study and was published in February this year in, your, in uh, the European Management Journal. It was a special issue on the dark side of social media. I encourage everybody to check it out because there's some really good articles in that special issue. But we, we did a study and we looked at the GMO narrative over time and we gathered up one, almost 100,000 uh, data points or URLs of individual articles that were generated between 2009 and 2019. And we mapped them. And we, we looked at that narrative, but we also looked at inflection points and how things changed over time in terms of engagement around those articles. And what we noted was things like, uh, like uh, you know, demonstrations or activism or activities and events that were related to that created an uptick in engagement around these things. And the other thing that we found was that a lot of that, uh, a lot of that content that was generated was generated by uh, sites that were would be considered uh, conspiracy sites or alternative health sites. And um, 
these are the same, or, and it's not just about GMOs, right? We also note that that there are uh, these are the same organizations, individuals, and sites that also create and generate disinformation around vaccines and probably COVID. We haven't dug into that topic at all, but but that is that's that's how this has impacted scientific integrity. And, and even if you look at the whole uh, issue of, of academic publication, we've got predatory journals. We have really great journals, academic journals, that maybe don't have access to appropriate peer review. And so the peer review process falls apart or can fall apart. So all of this really feeds into scientific, the, the, uh, the, the whole notion of scientific integrity and our social license to operate as scientists. And that affects everybody. It doesn't matter what sector you're working in. Now, all those things that you just mentioned really go a long way to eroding the confidence and the trust that the average consumer has in any kind of new technology. So this stuff is super effective. Wow. I mean, we're eight years past that Seralini rat paper, and it still has gravity. Yes, it does. It has life. Once it gets out there, even that first one that was retracted, it's still getting cited. It has a life. And um, that is what happens with all these. And the other thing is, too, is that you have academic citations and perhaps you have paywalls around academic articles that probably the lay public or general public is probably never going to read. But what happens now is those publications are taken up into media and social media and they are shared there and interpreted in different ways there. So again, that's where you see another layer that comes into this issue that can also affect scientific integrity. So you might have you might have actually a not bad article in a predatory journal. Well, it gets discounted because it's a predatory journal, even though it's maybe a pretty good article. But you also have some pretty bad science being published in good journals. And all of this kind of works its way down through that 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 media value chain, you know, social media media value chain, and it reaches the general public. And as soon as the it can influence public opinion, it can um, it can it can inadvertently raise the risk profile of certain technologies or approaches or science or GMOs, for example, in the minds of the public. And the public are the ones that can influence. Uh, public policy around it. They can envision it can impact decision making, uh, either you know, either from a policy perspective or decision making from a leadership perspective. No matter where you are or what sector you're working in, so this has huge impacts for societies. All you have to do is think about golden rice or think about virus, uh, virus-free cassava. The, these things have been held back or shelved for years and and unnecessarily. No, I agree. I mean, how much of this do you think is kind of contradiction fatigue where you have uh, people who, you know, make it real easy. You know, you read on, you see, you watch the news or you read, you know, the paper or whatever, read the internet and a new study comes out that says um, uh, a beer a day will save your life. And then you read another one that says a beer a day will kill you or, you know, coffee's good, coffee's bad. You know, this diet works, this diet doesn't work. I think that, and then when you start getting into technologies where people already have some suspicions because, you know, it's easier to uh, take the non-risk position, right? Mm -hmm. um, the precautionary position. 
do people just get worn out by not knowing who to trust? I think so. I think it's, it's information overload. Like I would, I mean, I don't have any of the, the stats in front of me, but can you imagine how many data bytes on average we are faced with every day between, you know, uh, being on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I think that there's a level of fatigue that comes with trying to consume this information. There's just too much. And I mean, if you think about attention more broadly, uh, as, as, and, and I refer to the attention, we refer to the attention economy in our paper, it is an economy. And also we have to recognize that attention is a limited resource. I only have so much of it in my day. So I'm going to be attracted to those things that, that fit or confirm my bias or I find relatable or meaningful in whatever way, whatever lens I'm looking at the world in. So these are the things that, that we find in it. I think we, we have to, we deal with information overload and we want to go to people we trust, but we most often uh, trust or access information uh, that comes from our close personal networks. Because at the end of the day, Kevin, we are herd animals. Human beings are herd animals. And we want, we want to keep in line with what uh, our, our close personal networks, we don't want to be voted off the island. That's the, that's the fact. I mean, no one does. No one likes it. No one wants to be wrong. So even if we're presented with information that shakes the ground beneath our sacred cows, we're going to go back to the information that confirms, confirms not only our bias, but the bias of the personal network around us, because it's simpler. We don't want to disrupt that little island we're on, and we certainly don't want to be kicked off of it. Now, this is really good stuff, and it ties in with a lot of what Dan Kahan has been studying and other folks like that. You know, we'll, we'll come back in the Talking Biotech podcast after a short break, but we're speaking with Dr. Cammie Ryan. She's the social and behavioral sciences lead for Bayer Crop Sciences at the Bayer Corporation in St. Louis. This is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Fulta, and I have something that I need you to do. We have an opportunity to solve a major ecological problem. The American chestnut used to dominate forests of the eastern U.S., comprising something like 25% of all standing timber. In 1904, a parasitic fungus entered the country and eventually all but destroyed this iconic tree species. There is a solution using genetic engineering. Dr. Bill Powell and his lab developed an American chestnut tree that expresses a gene that helps to combat the fungus. You might have heard about this back in Talking Biotech number 10. His goal is to start to restore the natural ecology of the Appalachians, and he submitted a petition of non-regulated status for the genetically engineered trees. Now what that means is, the trees can be planted outside without a lot of onerous regulation, allowing this perfectly natural gene to be back in the ecosystem defeating a fungus. But we need your help. Right now there's a public comment period that regulators take very seriously. So please visit regulations.gov and search with the term chestnut. You'll find the petition. Read the instructions and write a thoughtful response on your feelings about restoring the ecology 
and the dominance of this keystone for a species. Dr. Powell's group has done the hard work, and we know the tree is resistant and we know it's safe. Now we need your help to ensure its deployment and another success of biotechnology. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Cami Ryan from the Bayer Corporation, and we're talking about social sciences as they relate to decision-making processes in the public, especially around innovations and technology. And when we left, we were talking about this idea of, you know, people don't want to be kicked off the island. Are there mechanisms where uh, a population of of people with a similar worldview and beliefs that they actually will uh, come up with mechanisms to keep people aboard. So if somebody's kind of starting to ask questions that they will uh, kind of try to defray those influences to reinforce the integrity of that uh, herd, right? Are there mechanisms like that that take place? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a very common thing. We do it in our own families, for goodness sakes. Um, you know, going back uh, 20 years when I was working with social network analysis tools and so forth, we found that networks are interesting things. They, they stay together. A lot of times what pulls a network of individuals together is a common problem. And when you come together over a common problem, uh, you, you, you're looking for resources, you're looking for validation of your concerns around something, and you're looking to problem solve. I believe that these are very good things that happen. I remember, Back in the day, when I was working up as this obscure academic at the University of Saskatchewan, I was seeking people that were interested in the same things I was. You and I found each other on, on Twitter or something. That's kind of, I think that's where I, I think we met each other. But I was looking for that network. So that was my network I was looking for. And we all came together probably in response to the anti-GMO movement. We were interested in topics. We wanted to understand behaviors. We're trying to figure out why are people so mad about this amazing technology that has such huge implications for, um, in, you know, improving, uh, you know, production practices. And it's so good for the environment, all of this. We were coming together and we were trying to figure this out. But as I discovered in my PhD research, networks tend to come together, be cohesive. They, they get into this whole thing of a little bit of group think and uh, they reinforce the biases that may build up in that. But eventually they, they split apart. And, and we see that happening in all sorts of networks. And that's it's, it's probably in a lot of ways a healthy thing. But it requires, um, it, it means that people don't come away from those kinds of experiences without a bit of damage. It's, it's often hard. So uh, like I, we're working on a project right now looking at the history of the GMO, uh, the GMO labeling history. That's what we're looking at now. And we're kind of looking at the different networks that were involved in that, including uh, the anti-GMO movement. Like originally that push for, for labeling came from this very grassroots perspective of, of right to know. But then as you and I know, that, that network itself kind of split apart. And then you all of a sudden had this, uh, the whole GMO label, labeling thing attached to an industry driven 
uh, goal or objective. So you had the uh, the non-GMO label come out, non-GMO verified. So so all networks kind of go through these these growth periods. So while we're herd animals and we'd like to contain and stay, there's always something that is disruptive that'll make things shift. And and maybe that's what innovation's all about. Innovation's not doesn't only apply to technologies or uh, or products. Maybe it, you know it also applies to people and their relationships. And that and that's a big part of it. I remember back when we were doing um, these boot camps, like these uh, getting everybody together in one room and just kind of sharing what we were learning. What what we did to communicate science, but how we did it wrong. And I think those were kind of epiphanies for a lot of people. And, and we really changed the idea around science communication and what we were doing and how we were doing it. But what is the big drawback of just scientists and, and others figuring out how to be involved in this conversation? Like why, why is science communication is, is it enough? You know, is just talking about the science enough? See, it isn't. And, and I think where we get caught up in is if we just do enough of it, it will work. Like, like I'm simplifying this, Kevin. So I don't mean to do that because I don't think that that's really, it's more nuanced than that. And I think people think in more nuanced ways. But I think we fail to anticipate some of the problems that can come. Even if we communicate our way through a problem, there will be another problem at the end of it. Um, so here's what Psycoms is great. And we have to continue to do that. We have to continue to build resources so that scientists can communicate if they're interested and willing that they have, uh, people and support and resources so that they can continue to do it. And that's a whole other talk for a whole other day, because I think you probably have some insights on that, but science communication, accurate com ac communication of accurate information about science about technologies, about products, has a problem with discoverability. Disinformation will always outperform science communication because it somehow can achieve economies of scale in ways that science communication can't or doesn't. Uh, people are attracted to those crazy stories that have that are peppered with misinformation. And disinformation can capture a much larger market share of the attention as a result. So there are people out there, there are vendors, that it's not necessarily about GMOs. It's not about vaccines, not about all of this. But vendors are very interested in commodifying disinformation. And they somehow are able to merge it with broader political movements to recruit and popularize their ideas so that they can actually benefit from the disinformation. And the problem with all of this, just like with GMOs, is that what be, if some of these ideas become de facto consensus in these spaces because there's so much public familiarity around them. So for now, we see, and in our study where we looked at uh, GMOs and disinformation, the, the narrative arc for, for the information around GMOs has actually gone away. It's been traded off with other things, anywhere from politics to pesticides or whatever. But the public familiarity around GMOs, means, see, what we're seeing is that there's still, still more and more new non-GMO products coming through to the market. So even though that conversation is dissipated about GMOs, 
people still want those products that are GMO free. So anybody involved in STEM or science communication cannot always presume to have the high ground in debates around anything because sometimes some things just get a life of their own. If it's, if it's a bad study published, uh, published in a good journal that continuously gets cited even though it's retracted, or it's something like GMOs and the non-GMO verified movement. So how do those of us who are willing participants in science communication get that discoverability? Well, I think we're working at it. I think we're doing, I think I see a lot of great things. A couple of things that have made me very happy, and I'm sure that, and this speaks to my bias too. I can't, I'm a prairie girl. I come from a farming community. My family farms. But I really love that farmers are getting out there and getting engaged. And because they're getting out there and getting engaged, they're understanding the science more so that they can share the story in their way, in their language and in ways that are meaningful to them. So I think what we figured out is that, yes, scientists need to get out engaged. But guess what? Not all scientists want to. And we have to respect that, too. Right. That's. That's a very personal thing. Some people just don't want to, to, to engage in those ways. But what we have to do is those that really are good at it and want to be out there engaging, we have to provide the support. And that's what we try to do in our group that I work with specifically, our smaller subgroup that I work with in regulatory affairs, is we, tr we try to do everything that we can to equip and enable our scientists within the company to get out there and have these conversations and to share their knowledge and information. Because we believe that there is a moral imperative, not only a business imperative, but there's a moral imperative for us to fill in those gaps in the information that are out there. So it's, it's really important. But this is the part that always drives me nuts because scientists, at least, you know, I'm at, a, at an R1 university, a big university that heavy research. You don't go into that level of research and farmers don't go into farming because they're super excited about connecting with the public. <laughs> Exactly. Farmer out in a field, scientist in the ivory tower. It's antithetical to, right. to engage that way. Yes, you're right. Right. So, so how do you give them value? How do you put value in the exercise of engagement? Well, I mean, I think the bigger the bigger goal there, of course, is is uh, is probably. Uh, social licensed or social licensed to operate. We want to be able to use the tools that we want in the way we want them because they're safe, because they're beneficial. I think that that's got to be a common element between both thinking about farmers and scientists, right? They just want social license to do their job as best as they can and use the tools that they can. So those are the two things that I, or those are the probably the common elements that I can see. But but yeah, I mean, it's hard when you, when you're natural. Like to me, when I think about a farmer, I think about my uncle, my great uncle, my grandpa. When when they farmed, I mean, this was something they chose. They they were autonomous. They were entrepreneurs in their own way, and they were removed from society in so many ways. Because even at that back in the day, I mean, farmers couldn't even hardly leave the farm. At least now, technology's developed enough that you know, farmers can actually go to a family wedding or whatever. And, you know, cause they got robotics managing the dairy farm or whatever. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question really with that. And I kind of lost track. 
<laughs> no, you were fine. That's exactly where we're going. Is you know, even my wife, she's you know, she is uh, out. She farms small acreage uh, veg specialty crops, and if uh, someone comes to the farmer's market with a camera from the uh, written local news station, and they're walking it around, walking around and shoving it in everybody's face and saying, "Tell me about your farm operation," you know, she's not real excited about talking to them. Or if there's a podcast that says, you know, hey, why don't we get your wife on? She must be, you know, a chatterbox too. Um, and, uh, not so interested, you know, really would rather be planting seeds and doing the job. And I know that that's farmers. For academics, I think there's been a lot of um, change lately because I can talk to them about how even though they don't get credit for this for tenure and promotion necessarily, you still do. And kind of giving them the sense that there is this moral obligation, for, especially as a land grant or a public scientist, to be communicating and that there is some value in it for you and and that you have to do it. You just got to do it. And people who do, I think, feel very satisfied by it. But it is very much confined to new faculty, getting anybody who's a little long in the academic tooth to be interested, forget about it. So well, I remember that, you know, when, that, I was, that, when I first went on social media on Twitter in 2009, I don't know, I can't remember when I was first on there. And I, I gave a presentation in our department at the University of Saskatchewan, just a brown bag lunch thing. And I was talking about social media and they came up, they all came up to me after and go, went, this is a fad. And you are wasting time. <laughs> and I went, uh, I just explained to you why I wasn't wasting my time. I said, this is the new conversational space. And this is going to impact on how all of us can do our job in the future. So I think you need to pay attention. But yeah, I mean, to your point, it's something new. And I think we kind of, again, ignored it in those spaces. Just like we think we think we're doing Again, we're on that path. We're path dependent. We think we're doing a good job. And we are. We're all doing a good job. No matter what our vocation is, we're doing a good job. But if we're not keeping up with what's going on outside, or we're not outside of what, where, where we work, outside of the ivory tower, um, off the farm, if we're not paying attention to what's going on out there, it can impact what we get, the, what we get to do in our spaces how we can use technology to our benefit and so forth. So I think we need to keep tight and engaged with our, our on our little islands because that's where we, a lot of innovation can happen, but we have to leave. And this is something I learned in network analysis is you have to leave enough fluidity or breaks within that network to be able to invite in other thought processes or other ideas to engage because that just makes the pie bigger. Wow. It's, it's, this is really interesting stuff. It, it's, um, yeah, well, if you'll pardon a little bit of an aside, it's kind of funny because well, your, your story about, you know, talking at a brown bag lunch and having people not realize the value in the 1990s, like 93, 94, somewhere in there, I used to sell websites and I was a grad student. I'd go um, door to door with different companies and strip malls. And I'd say, there's this thing called the internet and uh, I can get you what's called a web page. And what it is, it tells about your company and anyone with a computer can learn about your company. And people used to, and I would say, oh, it'll cost you 300 bucks for the website and the domain name, and which is dark, dirt cheap at the time. And um, they would all say, well, why do I want that? <laughs> I have the yellow, I have the yellow pages. You know, I don't want people knowing about my business. You know, it, it really does show 
this complete shift in the attitudes towards the presence in that space and our contribution or, or need to be part of an attention economy. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I thought you were in a band back then. Was that between gigs? I was. <laughs> I, I always had a dozen plates spinning cause I was a grad student getting paid $12,000 oh. a year and living in the city of Chicago. <laughs> so, you know, I had to, I had to keep a lot of things going, you know, between shoveling snow overnight and working, you know, swinging a hammer and everything else I had to do. Um, but all good time. Um, we talked a lot about, um, misinformation and disinformation today. And, uh, I really want to really want to kind of dig into that just a touch more. Um, we've, we talked about this briefly during the break last week in the podcast, but let's go back to this again. What is the difference when we talk about misinformation versus disinformation? Okay. So misinformation, and this is, uh, this is what the literature says, and I think it re it'll resonate with everybody. Misinformation is really referred to as inaccurate or incomplete information. And misinformation can mislead through a number of ways. It can mislead through an honest mistake, through negligence, or through unconscious bias. Now, di disinformation is, is qualitatively different. And I think we have to uh, understand the difference between mis- and disinformation because I think it impacts how we would communicate through it. But disinformation is defined in the literature as a product of a carefully planned and technically sophisticated deceit process. So disinformation comes with intended or expected outcomes. And that can be anything from wanting to get someone to like your Facebook update status to, you know, a broader uh, goal for uh, banning targeted products or technologies. That's what you're seeking. So disinformation is a product that is commodified within a market, which is basically the attention economy. And the main difference between misinformation and disinformation is intent. But the two are intertwined. So, I mean, you know, you can have misinformation, purposeful misinformation disinformation can lead to the spread of misinformation, of course, and misinformation in, can in turn inform disinformation through deliberative strategies that can leverage some gaps in our understanding of products, technologies, or ideas. Okay. Yeah, that, that's really a nice way to put it. I always put it much less eloquently. I always say, when I see some information that I think is not reliable, I always ask, are they, are, are they stupid or lying? And, I, and, and so that's like the way to really distill it down in a very coarse way. Is somebody just genuinely ignorant and making an honest mistake or are they willingly trying to deceive you? And, I, you know, and that's, and I only mention that because we kind of joke about it, you know, stupid or liar, you know, like is it where, what is the basis of that misinformation? And um, it's a much less eloquent way of putting it, but kind of says the same thing because of that question of intent yes. and uh it really that's the thing that separates them right that's just all about it intent. is about intent and i i mean i gotta tell you and i gotta credit you with this way back like years and years ago probably before we first met face to face you introduced me to the concept of dunning kruger effect and <laughs> and that story that story with the lemon juice right yeah 
Yeah, good old um, I can't remember his name now. Uh, MacArthur, MacArthur, or something. He had a really unusual name, but yeah, he, the the story for people who don't know it, he was a bank robber who uh, walked into a bank, uh, robbed the bank, and was walking down the street, and the police grabbed him, and he said, "How'd you know it was me?" <laughs> and they said, "Well, we saw you on the camera," and he said, "Yeah, but I wore the juice." <laughs> And he read somewhere, probably on a web page somewhere, that if you um, rubbed lemon juice on your face, that cameras couldn't see you. And this was picked up. This story was read by uh, Dunning and Kruger, actually by Dunning, uh, who uh, then put together this hypothesis that people who had less uh, knowledge had great confidence that they knew and uh, did some very eloquent studies that were elegant studies that really were awesome. I should have them on as a guest someday, but, um, but really a neat topic and really an interesting thing that when we see uh, presentations in social media now, it is a massive overdose of confidence in the absence of real knowledge. So when you're talking about the attention economy is a term you brought up a couple, a little bit ago, how much of a big thing is this? And is this really what is being commoditized right now, even across all industries is the look at me factor that they can get through social media? Well, I think so. And I think we're all complicit in that. I mean, I post things on my, my private Facebook page to get some laughs from my family and friends. I mean, we, we like attention. I mean, I just think that that's it. And we now, we now have a platform through which to get attention. It was much harder to get attention before. You had to be, dare I say, more legitimate to get the attention that you wanted, but now you can just get it. So, you know, we live in this, this world has fundamentally changed. And, you know, even if, uh, if these platforms go away, they're going to be replaced with something else. So this is not going to be, this whole notion of missing disinformation is not going to go away. But when we link it back to this, this whole thing, even about Dunning-Kruger, uh, we all can fall into those traps of, of sharing mis and disinformation. We're motivated differently. Like one of the things I really try to point out and, and, and an extension of what I just said is we're, we're kind of all brand builders now. Remember at one time when pe people were, uh, were deliberatively building brands, it was because they had a business and they had a product to, and they had all of these things. But now we've recognized that each of us as individuals can be quote unquote influencers and we can build a brand. That means that the information that we create and share is influenced by perhaps different motivations or incentives. We're incentivized differently as to how we share information. And I think a lot of self-awareness has to go into this process, especially as advocates, as experts, as ones that are trying to go out and communicate our way through some of the disinformation. I think that while we, while we want to uh, model the, the best behavior and how to share information, I think we have to understand that we are also human beings and we can fall into traps of maybe sharing misinformation ourselves. And I think that awareness is probably really important, especially if we want to build up uh, some sort of uh, uh, social competency around 
you know, examining disinformation and how it works in, in our societies. So we've covered a lot of ground here today. And maybe the best thing to kind of wrap up with would be what you as an expert in this area would advise to, say, early career scientists, early career faculty, um, other folks in the sciences. What do they need to learn from social science and be cognizant of in how they approach the public with a communications desire? Well, I think probably if you, you pull it back, like if you're a young scientist, young scholar, and, and if you endeavor to be a faculty person or you want to go into the private sector, wherever you're at, I think one of the key things you can do, and this is something that probably you and I didn't naturally do back in the day when we were young scholars, is you need to cross those disciplinary boundaries. You need to start talking to people from other disciplines, from the social sciences, and they need to start engaging with you too. This is a two-way street because in order for us to understand that relationship between science and society, we have to not only be scientists, we also have to be social scientists. And social scientists like me have to also be scientists. We have to cross those boundaries and understand how science is broadly understood by the public. And it's, you know, again, I'm back to this whole point. Scientific consensus does not mean social consensus. So we're always going to have these social uh, factors involved. Social media itself has created this this space where we can go out and be citizen journalists and we can have our soapboxes and talk no matter who we are. But we have to use those those gifts or those channels responsibly. With great power comes great re responsibility. So I think that crossing boundaries is really important. Talking, engaging, understand a little bit of self-awareness goes a long way and humility. Uh, understand and, ex and accept even as experts, we can't know everything about everything. I mean, I've been in this ag business for 25 plus years and I still don't understand everything and I'm never, I'm never going to understand everything. So we have to leverage our networks and the network of experts around us and build up that, that build up that island that's open to having new people attached to it, but build up those networks so that we can actually communicate across uh, these problems because you can't solve some of these uh, really big problems like food security, uh, uh, climate change, and all the rest of it in isolation. We can't, there is no one organization, company, or university that can resolve all these issues. We have to work at it together. And that means uh, breaking down barriers to innovation that also include uh, disciplinary boundaries and things like that and start working together. And this is why these things like private-public partnerships really matter, why universities and companies need to continue to work together in extension, uh, you know, why it matters that we have these land-grant universities and why they work the way they do. So all of this matters. Well, that's a really great point to go out on. Um, it all matters and people need to get involved. They need to be building their networks and working to use communication as a way to build their dossier, build their brand, you know, gag me with a spoon, but that's where we are. Um, so if people wanted to follow you on social media, where would they look, Cammy? You look on Twitter um, at Cami D Ryan. I'm on there. I have a, a website under Cami Ryan. I also have a public Facebook page under Cami Ryan as well. So I welcome 
the conversations. Um, I try to keep up with all of those channels. It's not always easy. And guess what? I fail and slip up all the time too. So feel free to call me out on it. I get called out probably every day and I'll admit when I'm wrong, which is fine, but I'll also stand up when I think I'm, what I'm saying is right. And I think that's what we should all be doing. My argument is, you know what? I have a moral obligation to continue to work out there and to leverage the networks I have and, and, and get uh, get insight from experts like yourself that, that we can try and address and mitigate some of the disinformation out there. And, you know, it couldn't be more true in the times of COVID. And we didn't even touch on that today. But, it, uh, you know, the, the moral obligation that as this pandemic snowballs, um, which it will inevitably do this this fall and winter, how important it is for science scientists to be engaging and to be sharing the good information. So, you know, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks, Kevin. It was fun. And for all the rest of the audience, thank you for joining me again on another week of Talking Biotech Podcast. Please continue to write your reviews. We appreciate your support on Patreon and all the other good things that you do for us. Um, You're the wind beneath the wings that makes this possible. It um, wouldn't be the same if there weren't people on the other side listening and uh, presumably enjoying the podcast. (laughs) Our numbers continue to grow. So after five and a half years, um, we're still doing great. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us at a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.